Welcome to Voyager, the podcast. I'm your host, Eric Morgan. I'm a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay and editor-in-chief of Voyager, Northeast Wisconsin's Historical Review. Published twice a year since 1984, Voyager is a nonprofit magazine dedicated to preserving the history of a 26-county area of greater Northeast Wisconsin. Each issue highlights the historic people, places, and events from the region's past. Voyager is published by the Brown County Historical Society in cooperation with the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. You can learn more about the magazine by visiting our website, voyagermagazine.org. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us. I'd like to introduce Autumn, one of the magazine's social media team students who helped create this, our very first podcast. Hey, I'm Autumn Ackley. I am a history major at UW-Green Bay, and not gonna lie, I've always wondered what it would be like to be part of a podcast, and so far, it's a lot more work than most people might think. Without question, Autumn, and thanks so much for joining me. For the magazine's first ever podcast, we'll be exploring the history and haunted happenings at the National Railroad Museum in Ashwaubenon, Wisconsin, in celebration of the scariest season of the year. With the help of an interview that Autumn arranged between the magazine's social media team and the National Railroad Museum, we will discuss the origins of the museum in the 1950s, some of its most popular exhibits, and at the end of our show, the exciting ghost stories present at the museum since the 1970s. Autumn, you have a connection to the museum, right? Yeah, I actually had a previous internship at the Railroad Museum, so it was easy to reach out to the educational director there, Bob Lettenberger, and schedule the interview. It's really great that you were able to connect with the museum after internship. That's really what the historical community is all about. So let's get started. Yep, and before we begin, the listeners should know to should get to know Bob Lettenberger. He's actually the current educational director, a position he has held for the past 10 years, but he has been with the actual Railroad Museum for a total of 21 years. He shared with us that with the educational director title, he has worked with dozens of programs at the museum, such as Storytime for Younger Visitors, the Standard History Program, working with the museum's uh, curator to develop new exhibits, as well as math projects, science sections, and art for adults, which I honestly would have never thought for a museum, but for that program, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, without question. And uh, that's certainly a lot of responsibilities, but that's pretty standard in the museum world as exhibits and information are constantly flowing in and out, and people need to continuously work on exhibits and to interpret them for visitors. That's fair. Mr. Lettenberger admitted in the interview that during his time at the National Railroad Museum that he has worn many caps for sure. <laughs> to start our interview with Mr. Lettenberger, I asked when was the National Railroad Museum established and what was the process undertaken for for it and to become a National Railroad Museum. Now, before playing Mr. Lettenberger's response to the listeners, we will begin by sharing some information and background knowledge to lean you in. So the National Railroad Museum was officially organized as a national museum in 1958 by Congress, but as Mr. Lettenberger shares, the idea began to form in 1956. 
The reason for the plans to start a museum was because the steam engine was slowly being replaced by the new diesel engine, which was viewed as the more efficient model as it gave locomotives to gave locomotives power to haul increasingly heavy loads. But in response, groups across the U United States started efforts to save steam locomotives because their long history in the American Civil War and the Second World War, you know, good wars, I guess. <laughs> uh, so in Wisconsin, the local communities and business owners of La Crosse, Appleton, Stevens Point, and Green Bay would follow with their own passionate efforts to save and preserve a single locomotive. That steam engine was the famous Milwaukee, uh, Milwaukee Road 261. Uh, so their goal was to save the long-standing history of the steam engine and importance to the railroads. So the events leading to the formation of a National Railroad Museum in Green Bay actually began in 1956. Do we know what led to it being approved in 1958? That's a fantastic question. So something that I could answer, but we have Mr. Lettenberger's excellent answer on the game of telephone that transpired. So why not play the recording? All right, let's hear from Bob. Um, there was a gentleman, Carl Gray Jr., General Carl Gray Jr., who headed the U.S. Military Rail Service. The, the U.S. military has its, its own railroad operations. And General Gray felt that because of the significance of the railroads uh, in military operations ever since the Civil War, somewhere there should be a national museum marking this history. And Gray communicated his idea with the folks at the Wisconsin State Historical Society. The folks at the Historical Society at the same time were working with the folks in Green Bay who were looking for that one locomotive. And the idea in kind of a, a rather elaborate game of telephone got transferred. And the, the folks in Green Bay here thought, you know, wow, a, a museum dedicated to railroading. This, this would be a pretty cool thing. Um, some of our early directors, uh, founders, were pretty aggressive as far as asking for things. And that one locomotive turned into uh, 60 to 75 pieces of rolling stock that, that we have today. Now, the idea of a National Railroad Museum, uh, well, it came about in, in Gray's idea, but the folks here in Green Bay talked with Congressman Byrne, who represented Green Bay at the time, and pitched this, this National Railroad idea to him. Um, and Byrne took it to Congress, and a joint resolution was shepherded through Congress naming this as the National Railroad Museum. Now, the interesting thing about that is that, yes, we are congressionally named as the National Railroad Museum. However, the last line of the resolution said that no public funds will be expended on a regular basis to further the institution. So, hey, thanks, folks. You got a National Railroad Museum. You are the National Railroad Museum, but, well, you're paying for it all on your own. So, Ever, ever since then, we have been, yes, the National Railroad Museum, but we are a uh, Wisconsin uh, nonprofit organization, and we develop our own funding um, to support our efforts. What an interesting historical story from Bob.
For those listening and wondering if Milwaukee Road 261, the war baby locomotive from World War II, and the first locomotive the museum saved, can still be seen at the National Railroad Museum, we learned from Bob that, unfortunately, it is not there. A mix of various cabs, boilers, and other machine parts from different railways, the piece was beginning to decay before the museum reached a deal to sell the locomotive to close friends to be restored and brought back into operation. It's a great comeback story, though, with the train having been saved by local communities and then restored from a decaying locomotive into a state of movability and operation. It's still in operation today. It is actually an incredible story, but it actually has a little bit of a twist. Really? What's that, Autumn? Listeners may not know this, but while the Milwaukee Road 261 was the first locomotive acquired for the museum through donations, as Mr. Lettenberger phrased it, the way things rolled down the hill, it was another locomotive from the Wisconsin Sioux Line called Locomotive 2718 that came down the tracks on the museum property first. It's a small, really trivial who came first, but it is an additional fun historical fact that many might not have heard of. So it was two locomotives that originally came into the fledgling museum. That actually helps us transition to the next question that Autumn and our social media team had for Bob, which was, what are some of the other artifacts and locomotives the National Railroad Museum would begin to take in, and what is their historical significance? Let's jump right in with Bob's answer. We get asked all the time, what you know, what, what's your oldest? What are your oldest things? What are the what's the oldest locomotive? What's the oldest cars? So on and so forth. And um, the three things, three pieces really leap to mind when we look at the oldest and significance. Um, the oldest locomotive in the collection was um, the LSNI was a smaller railroad, and many of the bigger railroads had locomotives that were specifically designed to pull passenger trains and locomotives specifically designed to pull freight trains. Two different types of locomotives, two different machines. Well, the LSNI being smaller used one locomotive, one type of locomotive for both purposes. So when you look at 24 compared to other locomotives, you see some of those dual purpose um, characteristics. Um, 24 also has a neat story as far as uh, local ingenuity is concerned. Um, in the early 1930s, um, the, the LSNI in their own shops uh, went and modified 24 so that it would have a higher horsepower. And you say, okay, yeah, it doesn't sound too exciting, but when you think about it, 1930s, depression time, the railroad can't afford new locomotives, but yet they need more power. So what do we do? We give some people a job and we modify an existing piece. And what came out makes 24 look very interesting when you actually step up next to it and see it. Um, our oldest piece of rolling stock in the collection actually happens to be a caboose um, from the Anape and Western Railway. And most folks are going to go, Anape and Western, what's that? Where is it? It's a Wisconsin railroad. Um, it ran between the town of Anape and Sturgeon Bay. And right now everyone's going to be running for a map going, where's Anape? Well, you won't find it on a Wisconsin map anymore because what was the town of Anape they renamed themselves, and we know it today as Algoma. 
um, over on the Lake Michigan shore. Um, and the caboose was the, the only caboose for the Anapian Western Railway. Um, it was built back, um, back in the 1880s, early 1880s. Uh, and, you know, there's a piece where it says it's the only caboose for that particular railroad. Um, it gives you a, a glimpse into what, you know, what railroad people worked in it, in that time period. Um, and then also just because of the, the fact that, you know, the Anapian Western was such a short line and the renaming of the town, it makes it an interesting piece to, to talk about. The other older piece that comes to mind for me always is a really neat little boxcar. And you're probably going, oh, boxcar, yawn. Okay, no, 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 no. Um, we have a boxcar in our collection that is actually, it's called the Wisconsin 40 and 8 boxcar. Um, it's a little two-axle boxcar. It's actually from France. Um, it dates to the 1880s, and the significance for that boxcar is that it was part of um, the Gratitude or Merci train. Um, after World War II, the folks here in the U.S. through something called the Friendship Train uh, sent relief goods to the people of France and Italy. To say thank you for this, um, the people in France sent a train back to the United States, the Gratitude Train. Every state in the Union received one of these little boxcars. They were, were decorated most beautifully with the, the, the provincial shields for every province in France. They were packed with gifts um, from the French people to say thank you for the relief that the U.S. had provided after World War II. And it's just a, it's a very special little piece because the stories that go along with it um, are so human and so moving uh, and when you think about, you know, some of the other big pieces in our collection, like the, the Union Pacific, the big boy, one of the world's largest steam locomotive, or um, Eisenhower's uh, World War II command train, or, you know, other steam locomotive, whatever, here's this little boxcar that goes right to the heart and soul of human kindness and caring for other people, and yet it's so unassuming when you, you sit and look at it initially, so... For for me, I think those are you know those are some of the oldest pieces, but also I think some of the most uh, the most moving pieces that we have here in the collection. Just to quickly touch on some other incredible artifacts and exhibits at the National Railroad Museum, you just heard Bob mention the Dwight D Eisenhower passenger car, but we'll be exploring that piece in more depth in just a little bit. There's also the Union Pacific Big Boy, one of the most popular pieces the museum has to offer, which draws people from around the world. There's also the General Motors Aerotrain, which was created with the intention of luring the public back to the railway when cars were gaining popularity. However, it was considered a rough ride and poorly designed. With prototypes highly disliked, the National Railroad Museum got one of the few models. There's also more offered than just locomotives. There are papers, uh, photographs, maps, and other small objects stored in what Mr. Lettenberger called the attic, and a climate-controlled room that the museum and its curators used to build the larger story for the public. It must be a monumental task for those in this world of museums to select what is important to exhibits, what is essential to the story, and what will ultimately capture the interest of the public. There's plenty that the public doesn't get to always see, and in the exhibit, as Mr. Lettenberger told us, the public only sees 2 to maybe 5% of the collection, which is a lot if you think about just, like, how much history a museum already has and, like, 
whether it's a bigger museum or a smaller museum, it just has a lot of history because museums are just full of history. If we're being completely honest. <laughs> um, Absolutely. But that doesn't mean they are forgotten as the National Railroad Museum uses their archives to further research and even help with the local art. And as much as we like to learn about the history of the National Railroad Museum and to share that history with our listeners, we also ask a number of questions about the fantastical side of the museum to celebrate the spooky fall we all enjoy and personally myself as well <laughs> um we when we asked these questions it is good for the listeners to know that mr lettenberger answered with healthy skepticism and with the mindset of a historian now with that first question we asked was simple when were the paranormal happenings known to start? Since the answer was rather quick, I will just tell you it. So the stories of the hauntings reached as far back as the 1970s, but until recently, there was, there was nothing but the stories. Now, because of the number of groups, such as the paranormal investigators that come at this time of year, I think every year is what I vaguely remember from this, um, who have stayed the night and reported supernatural forces and sights with a number of pieces, it has become more known and believed. We'd also like to note that Bob himself has also staked out the museum on a few dark and stormy nights to see if he could witness anything ghostly. Sadly, he has not. When the social media team asked their next question, they focused on the popular rumor that the museum was actually located on a First Nations slash Native American burial ground. Bob was cautious to address these rumors, but he did bring some strong evidence against them. Here's his response. This particular location was selected um, because it was a Green Bay City Park. Um, the nor our, our property is about 33 acres. Um, it is divided by Dutchman's Creek. Um, the north portion of the property is a City of Green Bay Park, Cook Memorial Park. Um, the uh, south section is actually a Brown County um, land. Um, the, the Cook Memorial Park, the story as I understand it, it this area was um, the Cook family farm going back into, um, this would be the 1920s, um, the Cooks, in their will, um, left the land to the city of Green Bay as a park. Um, those early directors for the museum, when talking with the city, um, this was the park that the city uh, offered them for the, for the locomotive. Um, as far as early Indian uh, burial grounds, um, that is something that personally I am I am not sure of. Um, I, I guess from what I do know, I would have to at least question the validity of validity of that a little bit. Now that's a good response from Mr. Lettenberger. It was a strange question given that hauntings caused by First Nations Native American burial grounds in one of the oldest. Trops in horror stories. 
In fact, many American horror movies in the 1980s were built off the back of the native burial ground being the cause of the hauntings. For years, it was even a misconception that the classic Plotter Gris movie. Poltergeist. <laughs> Poltergeist. That one. Uh, as well, when in truth, it didn't. So in truth, it was a somewhat ignorant and racist trope that modern films have moved away from. But in the Green Bay area, there have been previous disturbances of burial grounds, such as in 1886 and 1887, when a water company uncovered a number of remains in downtown Green Bay. Tombstones were washed away or pushed into the Fox River by the company. Again, in 2006, more remains were uncovered in downtown Green Bay, halting further digging. On the ha downtown haunted Green Bay tour, during a year without a pandemic, that is. You can tour the streets and walk over the locations where the remains were reportedly found. So the rumors of the burial ground being disturbed at the National Railroad Museum, although not evidence-based, were influenced by previous findings in Green Bay. How delightfully horrifying, in a way. As we continue, we return to a locomotive that Bob mentioned previously, the Dwight D. Eisenhower passenger train. We said we'd come back to it, and here we are, but Professor Morgan, why are we mentioning it again? Fine question, Autumn, but you already know it's because the Dwight D. Eisenhower car is one of the museum's most popular pieces, and also the most haunted thing at the National Railroad Museum. Reports from staff and visitors say lights turned off remain on, and that there's a strong feeling of paranoia that overwhelms them when they're inside the passenger cars alone, like somebody is watching them. So the hauntings surrounding the Eisenhower car are fascinating before speaking with Mr. Lettenberger. All we knew here is that it is the only A4 class locomotive in the United States because it's a British locomotive gifted and renamed in honor of Eisenhower after World War II. When it came to the National Railroad Museum in 1964 on Memorial Day, Eisenhower himself came to celebrate, but that's just general history. We'll let Mr. Lettenberger explain the stories and terrifying happenings. The Eisenhower coach is at least one of them that dates, uh, again, back to the 70s. It's, it's kind of an interesting story, and, and, and really every time I've heard it and people I've talked with, there, there really isn't a plausible uh, explanation, so you know, believe, believe what you will. Um, you know, today the Eisenhower locomotive and uh, command train coaches are exhibited in our Lenfesty Center, um, enclosed, climate controlled. Before the Lenfesty Center was built, those cars were um, exhibited in our McCormick Pavilion, which is a, an open air pavilion, sides and a roof, but uh, not climate controlled. And being outside and, and being as significant as they were, the cars were, were locked and security around them was, was pretty tight. It, it was, you had to check the key out to go into them, so on and so forth. And the story was that one particular summer, um, a summer hire had checked out the, the key to access the cars and his, his mission, his assignment for the day was to vacuum um, and dust the inside of the, the two coaches. Um, he had, had done the vacuuming portion um, in the morning in one of the cars, 
and he had left uh, the vacuum cleaner with the cord plugged into the wall and stretched out um, while he went to lunch. And the idea was that when he came back to lunch, he would finish that car and then move on to the next. Um, he was the only one that had the key. It was reportedly the only key that existed. Uh, when he left for lunch, he locked the cars up um, and took the key with him. When he came back from lunch, uh, the vacuum cleaner had been unplugged, the cord had been wrapped up, um, and it had been moved to the center of the lounge area on one of the cars. Additionally, uh, the vacuum cleaner marks in the carpet um, had been swept out so that the nap on the carpet uh, was even. Um, well, the, the, the haunt story that goes with that is that uh, apparently Mimi Eisenhower, um, Dwight's, Dwight D. Eisenhower's wife, did not like uh, vacuum cleaner marks on the carpet. And so the suspicion was that it was her spirit that came in and, and uh, you know, brushed these away. Um, nobody from the time can account for how this happened, um, how somebody would have gotten into the car, because when uh, that, that particular museum employee returned, the car was still locked, um, and he, had, he had, was the only one who had the key to access it. So With that, we want to quickly thank Mr. Lettenberger, the education director at the National Railroad Museum, for taking time out of his day to do that fantastic interview with us. His answers and historical stories surrounding the museum were extremely helpful in helping us write this first podcast. Absolutely. Thanks again to Bob Lettenberger and thank you, Autumn, for conducting such a great interview and for joining me for this exciting and spooky train ride that was Voyager's first ever podcast. It's no problem. And thanks for letting me talk with you. That brings us to the end of today's show. Voyager is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Phoenix Studios executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Bartley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick. Our sound engineer for this episode is Sarah Miller. Thank you, Sarah. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlies. Special thanks to our guest today, Bob Lettenberger of the National Railroad Museum, Nashwabanon, Wisconsin. This episode was written by Autumn Ackley, Max Noyan, and Jenny Schmidt.